This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dizziness is a common symptom our patients often experience. It has a variety of causes. Fortunately, most of them are benign. Despite the fact that we frequently see patients with this concern, we still struggle evaluating patients with dizziness. Part of the difficulty is that dizziness means different things to different people, and the cause of dizziness can be due to problems in one of several different organ systems. Today's Mayo Clinic Talks podcast will be the first of two interviews addressing this topic of dizziness. Our guest today is quite knowledgeable in this topic, and he is Dr. Scott Eggers, a neurologist from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Scott, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Chetka. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by actually addressing the problem of why dizziness is so challenging to evaluate in our patients. There's three things that when they come in my office complaining of, I just, my heart kind of sinks. And one is, oh, doctor, I'm so tired. Another is I've been having headaches. Mm -hmm. And the third and probably most significant is, doctor, I'm dizzy. So why is this so challenging? No, I think you really hit the nail on the head, and that's interesting. You should say that. There's a great quote from an Oxford neurologist, Brian Matthews, back from his textbook in 1963 that says, there can be few physicians so dedicated to their art that they do not experience a slight decline in spirits on learning that their (laughs) patient's complaint is of giddiness. And he goes on to say that this frequently means that after exhaustive inquiry, it will still not be entirely clear what it is that the patient feels wrong and even less so why he feels it. And, yeah. and I think many practicing physicians still feel the same way. Uh, and, and I think there are several important reasons about why evaluating dizziness can be so challenging. And the first is really even just definitions or terminology. You know, our, our language does not capture well you know, the sensations that patients are experiencing that we often use dizziness as a term for. Dizziness is almost meaningless as a word, of course, because it can mean so many different things, whether someone is spinning, tumbling, turning, floating, lightheaded, unsteady, out of focus, or not thinking clearly. And so just even clarifying the language that we're talking about with patients and, you know, what they're trying to describe can be challenging. The second issue is really the fact that these conditions, even broadly, if we think about vestibular disorders, really spans many specialties, right? Neurology, otolaryngology, uh, general medicine, cardiology, psychiatry. And so there's really not one field where we are trained well in the approach to this broad group of problems. The third, I think, is just the anatomy and physiology of those systems How many of us remember all the details of the vestibular anatomy and brainstem anatomy that that we think are necessary in order for us to really be able to evaluate these patients? And the examination signs that we're sometimes seeking in these patients, looking at nystagmus and other eye movement patterns, are also ones that if you don't do every day and, and are thinking about those anatomic drivers, you know, are very difficult to keep in your mind as you're evaluating patients. So most of us were taught in medical school to take the approach when evaluating someone with a complaint of dizziness to really use the quality of the symptom 
to narrow our differential diagnosis. And this goes back to a, a landmark paper in 1972 and has really been perpetuated since then. So, you know, we are trained to try to interrogate whether the person is describing vertigo, a spinning sensation or a tumbling sensation by which we infer that that must be an inner ear problem, or are they describing lightheadedness or a feeling of impending fainting by which it must mean you know, that they have orthostatic hypotension or some other problem with hypoperfusion? Or are they referring to that they feel unsteady or off balance, some other group of disorders? Or are they just plain dizzy and go in this wastebasket term? And what we've learned since then it's, is that that quality of symptom approach is really dangerous in using it as the initial determiner of what the potential underlying cause is. It leads to kind of premature closure of our diagnostic thinking because patients frequently change their terminology uh, so they don't have good reliability between descriptions and also that the quality of the symptom itself is not particularly predictive of the underlying cause. You know, Scott, I teach our students that the history is probably the most important part of the interaction with the patient. And if you don't know what you're dealing with after the history, uh, the chance of you finding out from an exam or imaging studies is, is slim. And I can't think of a topic which is more important to get a good history than dizziness. And I also teach, you know, open-ended questions. You know, when we give our patients, you know, a couple choices, is, is this like a spinning sensation or is it more lightheadedness? We're only giving them a couple options where many options exist. So I want the patient's full description of what's going on in an open-ended question that, you know, tell me about your dizziness. Uh, you get a much richer history and a better clue in terms of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, we do want to better understand the specific character of the symptom. What's probably most important uh, in driving the differential is determining the timing and the triggers for the symptoms, as well as any uh, other accompanying symptoms. If the patient's having episodic symptoms, how long do they last? Do they come on purely spontaneously, or are they triggered by something, whether it's a movement or head position or valsalva or some other kind of specific thing that the patient does? And if we can use those clues, we can really narrow down the broad number of conditions that we would consider vestibular disorders into four key clinical syndromes, simply based on those historical elements. And that makes our job much easier because then we just have a couple of different possibilities to really consider as we work through the rest of the history and the exam. So really a clinical syndrome approach that we can talk a little more detail about really helps us in the office in narrowing, are we likely dealing with a particular peripheral vestibular disorder or a central disorder? And, you know, there's only a couple common causes in each category that we then really have to consider. Yeah. So let's say we've taken a very thorough history. We've kind of started to form our differential diagnosis. Are there specific exams that we should be doing with patients to evaluate dizziness? What's productive? I think the way to tailor the exam really depends upon the clinical syndrome because mm -hmm. you're thinking about different conditions in different scenarios. So the way I would typically try to divide things up is first determine based on the symptoms, am I dealing with someone who has what we would call an acute vestibular syndrome? In other words, am I seeing them in the midst of typically a first ever ongoing attack of dizziness, vertigo, or, or imbalance, where they're symptomatic in front of me. So this might be more likely 
in the ED or in, in the urgent care center unless you have you know, rapid access to your clinic. Because the differential then is most often between an acute peripheral vestibulopathy, like vestibular neuritis, versus a central disorder, which most commonly would be you know, a posterior circulation stroke or sometimes some other CNS disorder. And there will be some important key examination techniques to try to differentiate among those. The second clinical syndrome that would, we would most commonly see in the outpatient setting would be an episodic vestibular syndrome where the episodes come on spontaneously. So someone over days, weeks, or months has been having recurrent, non-triggered episodes of vertigo lasting for some period of time. And there we're often trying to differentiate whether someone has Meniere's disease, sort of the classic peripheral episodic vestibular disorder, or uh, what's about 10 times as common as Meniere's disease, vestibular migraine, something that we've uh, much better understood in the last decade or so. And there's a few other conditions to, to be concerned about there too, including things like transient ischemic attacks from the posterior circulation, you know, uncommon, but something that you definitely want to know about. The third syndrome would really be recurrent triggered episodes of vertigo, most commonly triggered by changes in position. So BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, being by far and away the most common of those conditions. But occasionally other conditions can cause positional type vertigo as well. The fourth syndrome would really be one of chronic dizziness or unsteadiness. And this is a large, of course, group of, of conditions that don't necessarily relate to peripheral vestibular dysfunction, although it can. Someone with progressive bilateral vestibular failure doesn't typically have vertigo. They have a slowly progressive sensory ataxia, essentially. But there are many other conditions that are particularly familiar to neurologists that tend to cause progressive uh, gait and balance disorders. By formulating into one of those syndromes, then it allows us to kind of work through the important questions to ask and exam features to try to elicit to differentiate among those. You know, one common cause that I see in my practice as a geriatrician that actually never makes it to you because it's not neurologic is that of orthostatic hypotension. You know, we're dealing with older patients whose baroreceptor function is somewhat impaired with aging. Uh, We give them volume depleting diuretics to control their blood pressure. These men are often getting up in the middle of the night to urinate. They get a post-micturition hypotension and I mean, at times it can even lead to falls and syncope, but they often complain of dizziness and often in the middle of the night when they're getting up. Right. And that's a really easy thing to check for. And we should be doing that with our older patients complaining of dizziness if it all sounds like orthostatism. Right. So there, the timing and the triggers would be a key elements to help you arrive at that diagnosis because the symptoms are present when they you know, sit up or stand up. Usually you'd expect them to describe it as a lightheaded, faint, woozy feeling, but sometimes they give you a description that sounds a little more like vertigo, but you don't want to be entirely dissuaded from the diagnosis of orthostatic hypotension based on the quality of the symptom. You want to consider it, look, look at their medication lists and their comorbidities and, and uh, check their orthostatic vital signs. Of course, you know, when someone sits up from bed and they feel dizzy, BPPV can commonly do that as well. So that would be the other main thing in the differential there. Very true. Very true. Well, what ominous symptoms should we be watching for? What might a patient say that triggers our concern that this might be not such a benign cause? So fortunately, even though many vestibular disorders can be pretty disabling to the patient because of the uh, nature of the symptoms, they're rarely life-threatening. And probably the most common 
dangerous cause of acute dizziness and vertigo is posterior circulation you know, ischemia, whether that's as an evolving cerebral infarction uh, or with episodic symptoms, you know, manifesting as a vertebrobasilar TIA. And probably the, the second would be that sometimes cardiovascular disorders, you know, a, a tachyarrhythmia or bradyarrhythmia can cause episodic dizziness, lightheadedness, unsteadiness, or sometimes even vertigo. So someone in rapid AFib may occasionally describe it as vertigo. And, and you want to at least not close off your thinking about that possibility merely based on the way that the patient describes the symptom. It depends on the location in which you're seeing patients. If you're evaluating someone in, in an urgent setting with, with an acute vestibular syndrome where they're acutely dizzy or vertiginous, they're unsteady or ataxic, the challenge with that group of patients is that just based on the symptoms, it's very difficult to discriminate an acute peripheral vestibulopathy from something like a cerebellar stroke because most commonly, especially with uh, the medial cerebellar region, they develop gait ataxia and vertigo, nausea and vomiting. It sounds just like a peripheral vestibulopathy. They don't necessarily have limb dysmetria or dysarthria, and they don't necessarily have all the other brainstem kind of symptoms that you might expect if it were a posterior circulation infarct. So that's probably the group of patients that's most likely to be misdiagnosed with a missed stroke. And the same is really true for those that are presenting with TIAs. Now, it's uncommon, but it's certainly possible for patients to have TIAs that are really isolated, spontaneous episodes of vertigo, usually lasting you know, on the order of minutes to sometimes up to an hour. And in an older person with several cerebrovascular risk factors, you know, if you're seeing someone where, where just in the last couple of weeks they've had a few spontaneous isolated episodes of vertigo like that, you want to at least keep that possibility in mind that you don't want to miss a possible impending cerebellar infarct. Now, mm -hmm. the, the kinds of symptoms that would make you more certain about that might be the other dangerous Ds of, of the posterior circulation. You know, do they also, have, with those episodes, have diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, uh, limb dysmetria? you know, things like that, but those are not always present. Well, you've mentioned benign positional vertigo a couple of times. Uh, that's a common reason for patients coming in complaining of dizziness. It, it frightens the patient. Um, I mean, it is benign, but it actually can be quite disabling to patients. What symptoms would make us think this is BPV and how do we diagnose that? Yeah, so I mean, in general, that's really the most common vestibular disorder. And we should be thinking about it and examining for it in our patients, even if they don't give you the classic history that you'd like to listen, because uh, you, you can easily pick that up on, ex on exam, you can treat it in five minutes, and you can really help your patients. BPPB should not be causing active symptoms in someone who's just sitting upright and not moving. It's triggered by changes in head movement or head position because those little calcium carbonate odiconeal crystals have fallen into the inappropriate place within the vestibular labyrinth. They're now in the semicircular canals so that when the patients move, those particles move and they cause erroneous activation of one of the semicircular canals. And so the history that you'd expect would be one where patients, either when they look up or when they lie down into bed or roll over in bed or they first sit up in the morning, you know, they trigger an episode of isolated vertigo that usually last seconds to up to a minute or so. But if they stay still and stop moving, as soon as those particles reach their new dependent position within the canal, then the symptoms should stop. 
Now, of course, as soon as they move again, they might trigger it again. So you have to be careful with how you take the history. They might say, I've been constantly dizzy for the last five days. But what they mean is that every time I do this, you know, it makes me dizzy. But if you pin them down, the episodes themselves should be pretty short. Now, sometimes, of course, when they're in the midst of having a lot of those symptoms, even when they're just up and around walking, they can feel, you know, more unsteady than they normally do. Scott, have you found a good question to ask patients to confirm in your own mind that they're describing vertigo? I mean, I've got one that I've used, but I'm curious, have you got something that's really effective? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I used to ask them, is it like a spinning sensation? Does the room seem to move? Is there a sense of movement? But I found the most effective question for me to get the right answer is, when you were a child, you'd go to the playground and get on these things that you hold down and they spin around real fast and then you get off. Is it like that? Because most people have done that at some point in their life. And that seems to have worked for me to get a description of dizzy or of, uh, vertigo. I think that's a great idea in the sense that you're not putting words in their head to confirm. Yeah. You're asking them, you're really creating an analogy to something that they've experienced before. It doesn't really matter what words they would put to it. They've experienced that that sensation before. And I think that's probably more useful than anything. You know, I'm often seeing patients after they've undergone caloric testing, you know, warm or cool water in the ear, which for many people can be quite uncomfortable. You know, it causes terrible vertigo and nausea, but frequently, and even just yesterday, I asked a patient, you know, are the episodes that you're having, you know, similar to when you underwent caloric testing? And in neither situation did the patient describe a real illusion of motion they got very nauseated and very unsteady, but I could not get them to tell me that either they felt themselves moving or spinning or the environment moving, but the sensation they experienced was identical to what they had during caloric testing. You know, So yeah. something that they'd experienced, uh, clearly stimulating the vestibular system. So that's an excellent clue. Yeah, patients are so different in their quality of ability to give histories. And sometimes I think we read into things that we want them to say, and we kind of go down that path when maybe right. we shouldn't be. I'll examine someone with a Dixalpike test for BPPV, and if I can manage to have them keep their eyes open uh, when mm -hmm. they're really dizzy, occasionally they're calling out how they're, they feel like they're going to faint or pass out, and they don't feel like anything's moving, but I'm looking at their eyes, and they have <laughs> yeah. robust nystagmus, and yet they're not giving me that same symptom quality that I would expect. Well, we still have the diagnosis there, but we would have been misled we forced them to bribe spinning vertigo. Well, another common neurologic cause is vestibular neuritis. And how does that differ from BPV in terms of the symptoms and the exam findings? You should be thinking about BPPV, usually in someone in your office, though sometimes these folks come into the ED, where they're fine while you're in the office with them, but they're describing episodes, of course, when they lie down or roll over. And so your exam is really focused on the positional testing. In someone with vestibular neuritis, they're typically come in, they have acute constant dizziness, unsteadiness, nausea, vomiting. You know, they're symptomatic while they're sitting upright with you. Vestibular neuritis, which the term comes from a presumption that there's an inflammation of the vestibular nerve, sometimes also goes by the term vestibular neuronitis or even labyrinthitis although labyrinthitis now is typically reserved for the situation where there is also acute hearing loss, whereas vestibular neuritis, there's no hearing loss. But those patients, they're unsteady when they're sitting upright talking to you. The acute vestibular syndrome that they're experiencing is typically manifest by spontaneous nystagmus and 
an abnormal head impulse test, if you're skilled with examining the function of the vestibulo-ocular reflex at the bedside, you can demonstrate that there is an acute loss of peripheral vestibular function on the affected side. And so there's really a three-part ocular motor examination that we do in order to discern whether someone has an acute peripheral vestibulopathy or as an alternative, do they have a central cause? Do they maybe have a brainstem or cerebellar infarct as the cause for their acute vestibular syndrome? So they lack the intermittency positional component that a BPPV patient would have? Right, right. We don't want to be misled because anyone that's in the throes of a vertigo attack will feel worse when they move their head. So whether, you know, whether we're asking them to shake their head around or whether we're doing positional testing, they might feel worse or get more nauseated if you tried to do positional testing in such a patient, but we shouldn't let that make us think that the problem is BPPV. They have symptoms even when they're sitting upright and staying perfectly still and they'll have, uh, have examination findings, mostly on the ocular motor exam, and they, they'll have difficulty you know, with their balance when they try to walk. A little while ago, you referred to uh, vestibular migraines. Now, that's a term I've not heard before. What, what actually is going on there? So the idea that migraines could cause dizziness or vertigo goes back well over a century. But really over, in, over the last 20 years or so, we've started to get a better understanding of how migraine may be able to cause vertigo as a symptom. I think we're all aware that migraine, although is usually most disabling to people from the headache standpoint, there are many non-headache manifestations of migraine that that's really formed the basis of how we decide whether headaches are due to migraine or something else. Light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, sometimes visual aura, sometimes other focal neurological symptoms, rare cases of hemiplegic migraine or things like that. And the concept of vestibular migraine is really one that migraine as an entity can cause episodic vestibular symptoms, just like it could cause other episodic neurological symptoms. We don't have a blood test or a scan or anything you know, that can help us discriminate vestibular migraine from other causes of vertigo. So just like the International Headache Society has developed criteria that we use, clinical criteria to diagnose migraine, we have clinical criteria that we use to diagnose vestibular migraine. And they really hinge on identifying patients with recurrent, usually spontaneous episodes of vestibular symptoms. The duration of those episodes can actually vary quite widely in migraine, just like it can with headache disorders. So arbitrarily, they've kind of put the time limits on anything as short as five minutes, which is about as short as a, an aura typically lasts, uh, to as much as three days, which by itself is not very helpful. But there aren't very many other episodic vestibular disorders that cause vertigo, uh, vertigo attacks that last for 24 hours. And then identifying a temporal relationship between the vestibular symptoms and migraine symptoms. You know, do most of the attacks of vertigo, you know, are they mostly accompanied by other migraine symptoms, whether that's migraine headaches or photophobia and phonophobia uh, or visual aura. Um, and of course, sometimes ruling out other conditions as well. You know, Meniere's disease uh, would be the most common peripheral vestibular disorder that would cause episodic vertigo, but that condition you know, is associated with fluctuating auditory symptoms, fluctuating tinnitus, progressive low-frequency sensorineural hearing loss, fullness, distorted hearing, things like that. 
those two conditions can be challenging to differentiate in part because many migraine episodes are uh, accompanied by vague auditory symptoms, some tinnitus or earfulness. And so, you know, getting an audiogram of these patients and trying to document whether they do have any unilateral sensory neural hearing loss is sometimes necessary. I will say, I mean, vestibular migraine appears to be probably at least 10 times as common as Meniere's disease. So it's worth thinking about, and often it changes over time or it develops in people who have had more typical migraines earlier in their life, and then maybe they've stopped getting as many headaches, and now they're starting to get these vertigo attacks. So they can kind of coexist, or one can replace the other. They can behave in a lot of different ways. Well, let's conclude by asking you to give maybe a few key points that you think are important for our listeners regarding the topic of dizziness. Sure. You know, one is, you know, dizziness as, is a really broad term. Of course, as you'd mentioned before, uh, things like orthostatic hypotension, things like medication side effects all need to be considered because those things are extremely common. Uh, as we think about just the breadth of what I would call vestibular disorders, not necessarily inner ear peripheral problems, but vestibular disorders broadly, uh, it's most important to really define with the patient what clinical syndrome he or she is describing. Uh, are they in the throes of an acute vestibular attack? Are they having recurrent spontaneous episodes of vertigo or triggered episodes of vertigo? Or are they coming in complaining of progressive constant dizziness or unsteadiness? Uh, because those distinctions are really going to guide the rest of your questions and the rest of your exam and focusing on the timing and the triggers of the symptoms and uh, some of the associated auditory or other neurological symptoms will really help kind of narrow your differential diagnosis. And then always check for BPPV if, if it's even a remote possibility because it is so common and it is so easy to treat with repositioning maneuvers in the office. There's nothing more gratifying than actually being able to fix your patient's vertigo in just a few minutes in the office without any special tests or procedures. Almost as rewarding as shroom and removal. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> well, we've been discussing the challenging topic of dizziness with Dr. Scott Eggers, a neurologist from the Mayo Clinic. Scott, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. It was great seeing you again. My pleasure. Thanks, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.